Welcome back to part two of our conversation with Charlie Traub. Before we get to that, I wanted to mention two shows that are up at the Stephen Kasher Gallery in New York City. These shows were meant to coincide with Black History Month. The first one is of the photographer Louis Draper, who passed in 2002, and he was one of the founding members of the Kamongi Workshop, a group of African-American photographers who got together during the civil rights era to support each other and to support the work of other African-American photographers who had little to no outlets at the time to show or sell their work. What also piqued my interest about this show is that Lou Draper is a predecessor of mine at Mercer County Community College. He ran the photography program for many years at Mercer. The reception was this past week, but the show is up through February 20th. Uh, it was a great reception. Uh, Lou's sister Nell was there, Nell Winston Draper, and she was just fantastic to be around. So much fun to talk to with so much knowledge about the photographs, which are also fantastic, by the way. Lou said of his photography that it was a means of engaged resistance, and that seems appropriate for the founding member of a civil rights-era photography group. And after seeing the show, I think Lou carried that sentiment with him beyond the civil rights-era. I think he was talking not only about civil rights, but also about his life as a photographer, and not being told that he was just this kind of photographer or that kind of photographer. And you can see it in the show. Lou was practicing all kinds of photography, from abstractionism to social documentary. Anyway, it is definitely a show worth seeing. And again, it's up through February 20th. The other show I wanted to mention up at Stephen Kasher Gallery is right next door to the Lou Draper Show. It's called New York PM Daily. PM, as it was known, was a very progressive newspaper in a very conservative media environment at the time. It supported the New Deal, union labor, racial justice, and it was a very early supporter of our entry into World War II. But I think the real reason why there is a photography exhibition of this newspaper is because it was filled with great photographs from the likes of Ouija, Helen Levitt, Lisette Modell, and Margaret Burke White. That show is also up through February 20th, so if you visit Stephen Kasher Gallery now, you're really going to see two great shows filled with both history and humanity. The gallery's website is stephencasher.com, and the gallery is located close to the corner of 26th and 10th in New York City. And no, I'm not being paid to promote Stephen Kasher Gallery. It's just becoming one of my favorite photography galleries to visit in New York. All right, well, let's get on with the show. Uh, when last we spoke, uh, Kai and I were about to get into Charlie Traub's relationship with the famous Light Gallery uh, in New York. And then we'll move on to really talking about Charlie's work and more about where photography is and where it's going. All right, let's start the show. Kai, you were going to ask earlier about the light gallery. I was, yeah. I mean, just because we were talking about it sure. earlier, and, and everyone who I know who was in New York at that time always mentions that it was Delighted. one of the few, you know, yeah. it was so important because it was early on and also that it was right. one of the only games in town for a long time. Well, Harold Jones was the first director of Light Gallery, and he was hired by Tennyson Schott, hmm. beautiful name, and Fern Schott. And Tennyson had been a copy lawyer and worked at Life Magazine, and I think she was a, uh, a person who worked there too, I think as an assistant picture editor, but I can't remember exactly what she did. 
they had this notion that they were going to open a gallery, which is sort of happening now, actually, to sell Life magazine photography. Not a terrible idea, but they, I forget, Sean Callahan, maybe, and a couple other people, go to Eastman House and talk to some people up there, and there's mm. other things going on. They met Harold, and Harold had this kind of remarkable persuasion and vision, and, you know, Callahan, Ansel, Siskin, I forget, I have the box here, I could tell you, could look it up, the original people, who were the people who were the artists, fighters for the medium that we've been talking about, and giants of the 20th century we know now. They opened a little space up on Madison Avenue, and subsequently, Harold left and went to the University of Arizona, where he opened the Center for Creative Photography there, which is mm -hmm. the big archive there. Victor Schrager, who's been a long colleague of mine for, for all those years, was the second director. He was fresh out of graduate school, and he was a New Yorker. And By then, Light was one of two, really, galleries. There was Witkin, had been there even before Light. And Witkin was a more environmentally uh, nurturing place. It was sort of like a fancy bookstore uh, with print bins and so on. But Light decided it was going to make a real gallery. Mm -hmm. Not that Witkin wasn't. He was, he's a, he's a pioneer, he was a pioneer. There, made, there were a few little galleries before that. Helen, Helen G. had the limelight. Uh, there was a guy on 10th Street. But they were all little things. So by the time I came to light, it was at 724 Fifth Avenue, across from Tiffany's. Today, it's still a gallery building. I think uh, D.C. Moore is in that space now. Hmm. Uh, an associate named Sullivan of IMP designed it. There was no more beautiful space, gallery space in New York than that space. Hmm. It had a curved wall. I can show you pictures of it. It was big. It had... A bigger, a moving wall, so you can make actually three divisions of it. Uh, it conducted itself in a very polished way. Well, that's a radical change for you, coming from Chicago, it coming was to a New York, and, radical change. and teaching, and then now uh, running a gallery space. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was what? <laughs> what seduced you? Yeah, what seduced well, you to do that? Was first it, of all, I was represented by Light. I'd had shows there and uh, pictures there. And it was Mecca. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there was MoMA and there was Light. Actually, I had, I had pictures at Wiccan, too, which always caused some trouble. <laughs> but I had them there earlier. Anyway, in the course of all this boom and interest in photography, this lecture series, I started Chicago Center for Contemporary Photography, mm. which is now the museum, which there was people very interested in you need a better place to show photographs than in the wall opposite the dark room. <laughs> and a bank in the, uh, near North Side around the corner uh, had some space, and we looked at it, and blah, blah, blah. And I think we had one show there. By the way, in the space at Columbia College, which was the old building with the dark room, we had shows like Lartigue, Brandt. Mm -hmm. We had everybody. I mean, it's unbelievable when you think about what we were showing there in this, they could have been stolen. I mean, they, they weren't worth all that much in those days. But, right. And we showed everybody. It was a way of enculturating and acculturating the student. So 
when this school obtained a new building, the downstairs space, which is where the museum is today, was available. And I talked to the president, let's make this a real exhibition space for photography. And he wanted also to have some folk art in it because there was another person, a little part of it had some folk art in it. And let's get the best in the best mm -hmm. and let's do it right. We'll even sell some. We'll have a little sales place because there was no gallery in Chicago to speak of. And we started doing that. Of course, we worked with everybody, but we worked a lot with light. So right. it's, it got successful. Right. And that's why they asked me to come to New York. Now, as the hick from Louisville who went to Chicago, I always wanted to be in New York. And I was, in fact, doing my lunchtime photographs in Chicago. I mean, I love the idea of working on the streets in New York. Mm. And frankly, most candidly, the job didn't seem like a sales job to me because mm -hmm. it wasn't. <laughs> right. It was a curatorial job. It was a way to make a statement about what photography is or was. Right. And I thought it would be wonderful that I could carry both hats. Very difficult because some of the photographers resented that I was a photographer. I won't tell you who, but uh, <laughs> and that I was having shows too, blah, blah. Not just at Light, but at other places. Mm. So I kind of had to put that on hold. I had to take my work out of the gallery. And it hurt my career. There's no question about that. But very quickly, and we're talking 78, 79, 80, photography caught on in a different way. Uh, it became somewhat sellable. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to remember, when I went in there, say, Lee Friedlander or Callahan or Siskin were selling for about $300, $400. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen uh, John Pilson. just has that new magazine. I, got, I think it's just called Picture Magazine. He just Ooh. launched the initial issue. No, of I it. haven't seen it. But, but I, I think I saw something on Facebook about it. Well, Tom, Tom Roma donated for this. They have it right at the beginning of the first page of the magazine. It's a price list from a show from, I think, the New York Council for the Arts oh, show. Yeah, $50. Yeah, and that no one sold anything. No one and, sold anything. Yeah. I mean, I have. Uh, I bought some... Uh, Actually, they give it to me. So Bruce Davidson's at a price of $50 on them. They were from the limelight. <laughs> I remember that. And I, I have some Siskins that have a price of $25 on them. Yeah. But, okay, 300 was a lot of money. And frankly, this is part of the tale of the growth of the medium. The peep, Light was doing business, but the overhead to sell a photograph is pretty much the same as the overhead to sell a painting. You have to register it in, take it out, insurance, you have to hang it, you have to frame it, you got to do all the stuff. You know, the, the overhead is terrific, particularly even then at 724 Fifth Avenue. Hmm. And the large part of the business were young people, young, successful, professional, often married couples coming in, sometimes a, a, a very sophisticated art historian or something like that, coming in and buying, I want a Callahan, I want a Siskin, I want a Brandt. I want an Ansel, blah, 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 blah. I can afford it. I want to get my wife another Callahan for Christmas, $350, $400, or Friedlander, or whatever, or Wintergrand. Wintergrand didn't sell as well as one might have thought. And there was a lot of traffic, and that added up. But then the, the Ansel Adams thing happened where they announced that the, he wasn't going to print anymore, and it was another Ponzi scheme, which held up. 
you know, all of a sudden the prices were in the multi-thousands of dollars for Ansel Adams. And Ansel right. was the most famous photographer next to, I guess, Brazil. Yeah, the whole moonrise over Hernandez right, yeah. thing. And yeah. Uh, which was probably the most valuable single art object, the negative at the time, because mm. it was selling for fifteen to $20,000. All of a sudden, well, his goddamn pictures are worth that money. Mine are worth 2000 <laughs> Right. Or And... Uh, and Gary and Lee and others, they, they were the younger generation, the Siskins and Callahans and, and uh, Minor and others. Strands were going at a pretty good price at that point. They were going for about 5000 four to five, three to five. Were people like Bruce Davidson and Nathan Lyons? Nathan didn't show it. Okay. Well, yeah, I think he did show it live, but they had no traffic that mm -hmm. I know of. Maybe Bruce had some. He was more Witkin, I think. Can't remember. I don't think we showed. All of a sudden, you know, this market changed. Well, the truth is, as soon as that happened, it cut the the young collector out. The enthusiast. And the young collector had been a product of my course or your course in the photo history at the university or wherever, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, they, that traffic, that, and all of a sudden it became, okay, we better do some tax deals. We better do some other thing. And yes, Ansel carried it, and Harry had a show at MoMA. We raised the prices from 400 I think, to 1000 hmm. And, you know, everything was sort of on the come. Right. And then all the kind of really wheelie-dealing happened. So so-and-so says, look at light. We're going to open a gallery uh, upstairs. Uh, Zabriskie started photograph handling for Klein, among others, who I also who I sh showed first, and that she wanted to show Harry in in Paris, hmm. and so Harry, you know, what well, I need more now, and uh, I mean I'm just, I'm metaphorically using that name, but that's what happened, and all of hmm. a sudden there's was a culture being created to the point where there really isn't that much business except in a few little pockets. But all the younger photographers thought, well, if, if Ansel's worth this, I'm worth this. Right. And it, it, it hurt them in a funny way. Yeah. And they would not. Nobody. I put out a letter, oh, maybe 79, 78, telling photographers, I think they should limit their edition to 100. Mm -hmm. Nobody would do it. They all thought I was out of my fucking door. <laughs> right. You know. And now, now I, I they all do it now. Oh yeah. Oh, well, now it's like three right. to five, right? right. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> but I, I remember, the, I did the calculation for Arnold Newman on the famous Stravinsky picture. I said, mm. you know, you could limit this to even a thousand. We could sell it with an ad in the Symphony Bulletin. Everybody, every musician in the world wanted that picture. Right. Sell it for a thousand dollars. I mean, if you did the numbers, it was multi millions. Which was a shitload of money then. Bad. He wouldn't, yeah, he wouldn't yeah. consider it. Oh, yeah. It was too cheap. <laughs> and it, it was a little cheap, but it was actually a very smart idea. Yeah. And, um, and to just jump to present day, I, you know, grad students, day they graduate, are like going to museums or galleries, like, uh, you know, a 20 by 24 inkjet print, $10,000. Right. You know, like, I mean, right. give me I mean, break. people aren't. Paying it, probably, right. but still just that idea. But if that, you hit and you find a collector to buy it and then something ends up in auction, and, and that's how certain stars are made. Yeah. But I went to, I was telling somebody this the other day, I went to the, one of the first photo auctions where we had placed a strand in auction and it didn't sell. Mm. A collector who 
ended up being a rather important collector and still important in the art world, who whose early photo collection must be worth millions and millions of dollars. The minute I got back to the gallery, he called me and said, why didn't you buy that, raise, bid yeah. that picture up? What? I'm not supposed to do that. Right. Of course, I was that's so now wet standard. Behind the ear. Yeah, standard practice. I didn't practice know. I didn't understand oh, that I was supposed to do that. <laughs> You've hurt my collection. Blah, 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 blah. Nice. I just didn't get it. Right. I, you know. So. So, the turning point for me was Tennyson was a very whimsical and wonderful guy, uh, always looking to the future without the money to back it. He put his office upstairs and then he wanted to open a gallery in California because this guy, Renato Denise, had talked him into it. We'll do $50,000, you know, in the first six months. It seems like a lot of money. Now galleries, you know. Right, right. <laughs> I said, Tennyson, there's no way that's going to happen. It's going to cost you this much to build the gallery. They opened a beautiful gallery in California. I resigned. I said, it's not in the books. You're going to go bankrupt. You resigned from light. Yeah. Because it was the day the gallery opened in California, I said, it can't be done. It's, and of course, it closed maybe a year later. And basically, light was done. Mm -hmm. Though they went through a number of other directors after me, Peter McGill, Bob Mann. It lasted another four years or so, but it never recouped. Mm -hmm. um, because everybody, frankly, believed in the Ponzi scheme. And it was a Ponzi scheme. So I was liberated in a way because uh, I could now be an artist and photographer, but I had to make a living. So I did right. a lot of freelance editorial work. But, but you're no longer competing with your with my own people. Clients, and, sir, right. And the truth is, the year I think, one year we did a million dollars worth of business when this, right when this Ansel stuff happened and Harry's thing. It seemed like so fucking much money. And we were shocked. And that's when Tennyson got these ideas, well, we'll, we'll expand now, which right. any French, any <laughs> corporation knows can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. It can work. And that million dollars was all owed one way or another for all the overhead you had. Uh, right. So it, was, it wasn't in the books. Right. And most of these galleries, even today, have this problem. Both they have the possibility of selling you know, one or two very, very valuable pictures, which pays for all the rest of it. So the young student thinks, oh, he's got so-and-so, but he's not really selling so-and-so very much. Yeah. Or she's not so Right. So it's not so different. And it wasn't, it wasn't for me any longer a problem of being a curator. It started to be business. And I realized I'm not a businessman. Peter McGill, who worked with me and under me, was certainly a fine businessman, and he, you know, he loved that part of it. I didn't, mm. uh, but I'm very proud of things we did there. We did the Institute of Design year show there, 40 years of photography at the Institute of Design. I showed Luigi Geary, whose mm. work was ignored by MoMA and the establishment, who was a giant and and really is a giant, still undersung. I brought in Metzger. I brought in Klein. Um, whole number of people that changed uh, that you know really I was really proud of and uh, I turned down Eggleston <laughs> <laughs> kind of proud of that myself <laughs> um, that's another story but, um, 
And I became persona non gratis for the client show and turning down Eggleston at MoMA. I wasn't invited to anything from MoMA for almost 20 years mm. because of it. Oh, really? Wow. No, no kidding. I was never in the inner circle there. Oh, right. wow. Oh, wow. Directly I, tied to that. It was directly tied to that. Because oh. I know later, you know, John distanced himself from uh, Eggleston, but. Yeah, but at that but time, I guess the word late. came, but yeah. a light has to show Eggleston. Uh, and yeah. I looked at the work and I said, there's nothing here for me to show but what you've already shown, which is the way more or less I still feel. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they ignored client. I mean, they were just mm. livid because we did a real client show and they know that they did a little slideshow or something at the time and they were offended that we did a real show or something. And we, I don't know the particulars, right. Right. but okay. I know that <laughs> it. I was on the outs from then on. On here. But you, so you're, you're done with light work, you're, and you're out, and you're photographing. And I just want to mention before we, well, before we do, uh, if we um, don't get to mention it later, you, your website is traubstudio.net. It's charlestraub.com. Oh, yeah. okay. Boy, that's, I, I, that's the one I found with Google. Yeah, charlestraub.com. You know what it is? I, I, I go on the pages, and I get redirected. And I know. So I have to that fix, must be it. There's something wrong there. But, yeah. And also, I have something called uh, an interactive site called Still Life in America. Oh, good. So Which when we when we post the show, we'll post the links to yeah. your website. So the two websites, a any social media or anything like that. Yeah, I'm Charles Traub, and I do Facebook, and mm -hmm. I do uh, Twitter. Twitter? No, yeah. I don't do Twitter too much. Okay. I do Instagram. I've right. gotten more active there. Yeah, I've seen you on Instagram and, and Facebook. And, and Facebook, and then there's MFA Photography, SVA, which frequently has stuff. Right. Yes, and um, I've seen it there. Yeah. But I don't do Twitter very much. I don't know. I'm a terrible typer. Right. My fingers just, it's part of my dyslexia. I just, they don't work when they're supposed to work. <laughs> so good. Well, so, yeah, we'll post all those links. Yeah. And then they but can it's charlestraub.com. Yeah, yeah. It comes up pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, it's so tempting to spend all our time with you speaking yeah. about, you know, the history and, and education, yeah. of course, which you've seen this incredible transition. But I th thought we could switch over to speaking about the work, you know. Thank and you. So during that time, uh, like of the bodies of work that you have on the website, how many, I, some of those I know were in Chicago, but then like, how did this thing happen where you went and spent those six months in Louisiana? Oh, that's, that's nice. There, um, <clears throat> it's part, it's a, uh, I think that's Cajun, it's called Cajun, Cajun document. document. Right. And, yeah. um, myself and Doug Boz, who was a graduate student at, uh, the Institute of Design with me, I think the f second winter, I can't remember, you know, you get time off, over the holiday, and we said, road trip. Right. <laughs> Somewhere warm. The, the classic road. <laughs> and we trundled down the, the great Mississippi, uh, the great river road, mm. all the way down. And all of a sudden, second, third day, I think we found ourselves in this area called the Atchafalaya Basin, which mm. is uh, where the larger part of the Cajun culture is. And people were speaking French. Right. <laughs> And the food was incredible. I mean, I just remember we just, we didn't know anything about it. What is this? Right. This is America. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't, the Cajun culture was not known at that point mm. the way it is today. And um, wow, yeah. this is really something. This is great. My, my mother grew up in... Uh, mostly in New Orleans, but also all her family's all from northern Louisiana. Yeah. And so there was a... She always talks about the food and, of course, the, food and, is fantastic. the culture. But and it, uh, hadn't, it, it hadn't been discovered at all. And then yeah. there was, I think we had graduated from, 
graduate school, we were both teaching part-time at Columbia College in a year or so, and we decided we'd ask for a leave of absence and go down and document this culture, that this would be a really great project for us. And we did it together, and I don't know where we initially got money. We didn't have any money, but I guess we just probably took it from my baby's piggy bank. But <laughs> I don't know how we really initially financed, but we went down, we met a guy named Jimmy DiMaggio, who was the, an ex-congressman, uh, wheeler dealer, and he would started something called Codafil. Codafil mm. was to bring French-speaking people from Montreal and Quebec and France to Louisiana to, to teach in the public schools in Louisiana in order to keep the language going. Oh, interesting. It still exists today. And the French, from the French government, they got, uh, it was like the Peace Corps for them. They, got, they did get out of the service in the Army. Hmm. And uh, we met him, we knew about it, we found out about him, and he gave us 3,000 bucks. Uh, I remember we went in to see him, and he was in this office in Lafayette. And he said, what, boys, what do you want? What do you want? <laughs> be quick, be quick. I don't got time to scratch my balls. <laughs> and there were women all over him. And we said what we were trying to do. He said, I'll give you $3,000. You can stay in my camp for a little while, too. <laughs> nice. So that was really yeah. quite serendipitous and, and wonderful. And, yeah. And he, he turned out to be a little bit of a demagogue, but nevertheless, he had a vision, uh, which is history is dealing with him now. Um, it turned out that these French-speaking teachers were teaching classical French instead of the patois that yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> it was complicated. But. Yeah. Uh, so we spent six months in Bro Bridge. We traveled all around, photographed. We did thousands of images. And it was planned, we had a kind of tentative contract with a guy from LSU Press who died in the course of our thing, and so it never came into fruition. We had a couple yeah. of shows, I think one in, uh, we had one in Louisiana, one in Chicago, a couple, uh, one in Montreal, I think, or, or Quebec City, and it just sort of sat in boxes mm -hmm. for years. And then one day I started looking at it and I said, this stuff is really good. It's really good. Cajun culture was everywhere. And um, the food, of course, you know, and the music is all by now gotten, it's part of popular culture. Yeah, and food television helped right. bring that about. Food, right, and Paul Prudhomme and then that, that other guy who, from there, who, the Cajun cook or whatever, mm -hmm. and, and others. And uh, so there's a plan by the historic New Orleans collection to do a major exhibition of it okay. in the next couple of years and travel it hopefully to France and back to Quebec. And um, that's that. Yeah. I mean, it was a great time. Mm. Uh, we personalized it as much as we can. We, we lived pretty much in a Cajun community, you know, and um, and you think of it as a, a real collaborative project. Oh, it was definitely a collaborative. I, mean, I think when you we wrote don't even that, know who took what. That, that was going to say. We have no that's idea who. Say, right? I mean, you, we may know a little bit, but there are certain pictures. Yeah, I think I took. No, you took it. I don't know, <laughs> blah blah blah. And um, and that's not. And we that put happens. both our names on it all yeah. the time. And uh, you know, there was no money to get from it, and we didn't have there were there weren't any grants. I don't know. I think we applied for a national endowment, but we didn't get it. Um, 
it's not something that happens a lot anymore, no. this, this collaborative idea. And ha- no. maybe that has something to do with the idea that you're self-made. And so you yeah, can't exactly. you couldn't collaborate with someone. On and we were, else. you know, we called ourselves uh, Boz Traub Cajun Photographers. We had a shirt <laughs> made with that. And at the Crawfish Festival in Bro Bridge was, was the first big one. We had a button machine and we did Polaroids and we sold <laughs> oh, the buttons. We actually made some significant great. money to finance it. You know, we did people's portraits oh, yeah. and put them on these buttons. buttons. Oh, that's great. And, uh, and it was a pretty <laughs> smart thing to do, actually. We made, a, we made a lot of money to carry us through. See, Kai, that's what we could do with the button maker. Kai that's and I were at the right. photo expo looking at the button maker. Like, yeah. I always want one. I just don't know what <laughs> right. I do with it. That's what we did. <laughs> there you go. We had Polaroid and we, Perfect. we set up a little outdoor studio <laughs> and we sold a lot of them. <laughs> that's great. I noticed one of the pictures, and I guess we don't know who took it. Maybe it was a photograph of uh, uh, Clifton Chenier, the amazing. Yeah, yeah. And have you seen that Les Blank documentary, Hot Pepper? It's all about Clifton Chenier. And is he that does, a more recent one? Then? No, he did it. It's back I, then. Back then, I think we met him. Yeah, uh, I don't think we ever saw that. But he did another one. Uh, he did two another yeah, documentary there. down there with. He her. was down there pretty much. I think Around overlapped to some degree. And of course, we knew the Flaherty. Oh, the yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, but there had been nothing really significant done, except Les Blank was there pretty much the same time. And I think he's a great filmmaker, by the way. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and uh, no, I don't, haven't seen that. But we photographed, we have almost all the major musicians from Clifton Chenier to uh, Dewey Balfour mm. to uh, Nathan Abshire, who mm. was the concertina guy who mm. really was more the most famous at the time. Mm. People don't, and uh, the, the collection of musicians is pretty interesting in itself. So we did landscape. We did parades. We did food. Just we immersed yourself, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we did a little bit of a kind of, I think we might have looked at Stryker's list. Uh, you know, we, we weren't, wet behind the ears we had it we had we knew we had to cover certain sociological issues Mm -hmm. though we didn't cover them as sociologists by any stretch of the imagination and then uh most recently you've had uh your work it's called lunchtime right published (laughs) (laughs) well lunchtime or street portraits is what i used to call them right uh, they started when i was at columbia college i think probably the winter of 77 maybe earlier than that, maybe the spring of 77. And I'd go out at lunchtime and photograph on the streets of Chicago, primarily Michigan Avenue, because his office was there. And it continued, and then I got, as I said earlier, hired by light, and I went to New York, and I went out on 57th Street. Mm. And I was simply interested in, frankly, a non-affected approach to looking at people on the street, almost unstylized, if you will, though I had... A Roloflex SL66, and I could get very close. Mm. And I was really interested in seeing how many people and types I could encounter, have a commune with for 125th of a second. And uh, I was very interested in the presentation of self in everyday life, and what they what they did. And there's usually a dialogue, and I rarely ever got turned down. Mm-hmm. Almost never. Yeah, they do. They do have a bit of a candid quality to them. Yeah, well, they're taken in that moment of acceptance before they pose, or even after they pose. And they really, there's only they're they're not multiple pictures of any given person. Almost never. Um, I've told some stories. You know, some of the stories are 
Jackie Kennedy walked by when they were paparazzi photographing Jacqueline Smith, which always ends across the street. <laughs> and she stopped and said, if you need to take my picture, please be great. And I said, Mrs. Ken Mrs. Onassis, I'm not here for that purpose. Thank you. And I didn't take her picture like an idiot. And then who walked by next but John Lennon and Yoko Ono and did the same thing. I didn't take their picture. And uh, my own mother another day walked by and I didn't recognize her right away. You know, I mean, funny things happen. Like yeah, that. yeah. But the, the Jacqueline Kennedy, which is if you stay in one place long enough, everybody will walk by. And I was thinking to myself, I was laughing so hard about it. You idiot. <laughs> All these stupid paparazzi are across the street, and the most famous woman in the world walked by. Right. And then the most, probably the most famous man in the world walked by. And the only person more famous would have been Muhammad Ali, but he didn't walk by. Yeah. So. But that's not what you were looking for. It wasn't that's what I was right. looking yeah. for. Right. I was really keep interested. walking. Keep yeah. I was really Ali. interested in anonymous people. <laughs> right. Though there is in the book a picture of um, William Holden, but I didn't recognize him as mm -hmm. William Holden when I, the moment I asked him to right. photograph. I did subsequently. And then there's an homage to a number of photographers in there. Lartigue's in there, mm. Bravo's in there, Cortez is in there, Cornell is in there, and Mary Ellen Mark is in there. Right. So. And uh, another thing that I think is a little unusual about your work is that you've got some projects that are in black and white and some in, that are in color. So yeah. did you was there a conscious decision of, of these need to be in color? Or? Yeah, uh, those definitely... Uh, I had worked in black and white in that square format in Chicago most of my career, early career, and even four by five landscapes before that, but that's mm -hmm. more juvenilia. Um, I was very interested in people and what they looked like and how they were willing to display themselves. And if you know the beach pictures, mm -hmm. that's all about display. And I thought... The beach that, is in black and white. Yeah, it's definitely right. black and And my instinct at the time was, this is probably... First color pictures I took were probably seventy late seventy five. We had a that's just when the process was getting easier, mm. and that had a lot to do with why people turned to color. By the way, the process got easier. So you're shooting color negative then? Yeah, and um, I printed the, the the first ones myself, and it was very tedious, and you know I didn't have time, frankly. I actually sent the negatives to a wedding photographer. Mm. Uh, house, you know, because they have clean machine. Even then, they had clean machine. Right. It was very, yeah. And it was very inexpensive. But it was color negative. And what I really thought, and the reason for it was, I thought if I'm going to make these pictures about presentation of self in everyday life and these people passing, what they wear, what the colors are, is, is the telling issue. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I never really went back to black and white until fairly recently because I see myself as some kind of real-world witness photographer, mm -hmm. whatever that really means. Looking, taking, I never construct pictures. I don't make pictures in collage. I mean, I'm not saying I'm telling the truth, but, <laughs> but I am a real-world witness or documentary photographer, and I think color is essential to making a document, which I see those pictures as. Mm -hmm. They are... They are a scrapbook of that time. Uh, so, and then, then my later, my Italy work, and then after that, you know, in the still life and, and still life in America. Now, recently, <laughs> I started photographing stuff about U.S. Grant. 
And that's a whole other story, but the people say, why are you on U.S. ground? These, these are the photos of the monuments and, and things monuments like that. Monuments and home places right. and battlefields. And I thought, this is an elegy. This is not really a document about him. This is a kind of poetic elegy to his legacy. Mm. And I just thought it would be too raw in color. So I went back to black and white, digital black and white, which I like very much. And I think fits fit. It hasn't come out yet. It's going to be a... It's going to be a digital book with interactive, all kinds of historical stuff in it and quotes and things. And an actor named Ado Ballerino, Ballerini, who's a fairly well-known actor, been in Boardwalk Nation, all that kind of, and has also books on tape reader, mm. uh, done 75, 80 of them. Mm. He reads the text from Grant's memoirs. And it's a kind of an experiment in publishing experiment to see how this will go. Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is there are two audiences. There's the art audience or the photography audience that we're part of. And then there's the history audience, which is bigger. Right. The conventional publishers don't know how to target between those. Yeah. So, you know, and of course the cost of doing 140 pictures in black and white is very expensive. So we're going to do it digitally. It's done, and I hope to have it out late in the spring. Oh, wow. And all, the, all the, There's a lot of programming and stuff goes went on, but it's done. Right. So, yes, with the Cajun Project is, should travel soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, you have the digital book. Uh, lunchtime is out. Uh, Dolce Via, the Italy Dolce book. Dolce Via, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And a couple of years ago, uh, there was a book called uh, In the Still Life, which Jim Maris and Norton published. And then I did a book called Still Life in America, which I didn't publish. I did maquettes for it. And I'd like to get publish it. Mm. Um, it's an extension of, it's a look at America. It's a pun on still life. But actually, there is a website for that. Mm. It's owned called stilllifeinamerica.net, oh, okay. which is interactive, and you can move images around and do things with it. Nice. We'll definitely link to that as well. And uh, how about that vin the vignetted square of those of those pictures? I was curious. Well, those about are those. the early pictures. Those yeah. are the pictures that basically came when I was at the Institute of Design. I did a thesis on landscape, kind of edge to edge, very dense landscape. You can see them on my mm -hmm. website somewhere. I did them in negative as well, which has become right. very popular again. That's uh, the positive landscape, negative yeah, landscape. Yeah, yeah. The negatives where I, I printed the negatives, I printed it in reverse, mm -hmm. and I like that uh, sort of reference to the origin and to also the the idea that you couldn't get through that forest you don't know about some of them that they're negative or positive yeah and there's definitely ones in yeah. the negative where it's uh, up for debate i was very interested in the destruction of the horizon line <laughs> so oddly enough now that i think about it and in the sort of density of the surface itself as an abstract surface, obviously my influence from the Institute of Design from Aaron and abstract, abstract image making was there, though they're very detailed right. pictures. I was basically through with it after my thesis. And I had bought the SL66, by the way, Harry... Callahan bought one and did a lot of work with that similar camera, mm -hmm. as did Aaron and other photographers. It was a remarkable camera. It was similar, people today don't know, it, to a Hasselblad, except it had a bellows on it. Yeah. Do you know the... But it was a little bigger, but do you know uh, the same Br lenses. Do you know the British uh, photographer and uh, technical author, uh, Barry Thornton? Yeah. 
So he he, he was loved that camera. Oh, it was a wonderful camera. And he and he describes in one of his books, I don't remember which one, going to like buy a part or something for one of his SL66s, and the <laughs> the guy in the British camera store said. We can't keep any of these in stock because your books became so popular that people like just started buying up these wow. SL66s and like we couldn't. This wow. was like about ten years ago. We couldn't get you know, couldn't get. Your I hand used on it one. for a good uh, twenty years, I guess. Yeah. And it, I think at some point it's it nice just and wasn't compact. repairable. And yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I went to the. I was the first one in the city to have the. This is interesting in terms of Tom because when I saw Tom's camera that he built when he came into light, I think in the late seventies. I like that idea of the six by seven format, mm. and except it was kind of cumbersome camera. It was heavy, and I'm a lazy guy. <laughs> so immediately at that time, this Plowable Makina came out. Oh right? yes, I have one of. Those. And I had you have one. Oh, yes, right, I have right. the first series. That's what I had. I had right. the first one in New York. It was sold by Doi Camera, and then everybody started buying them. And it was a great camera. It had a bellows too, but it didn't tilt and swing, but it made yeah. it compact. And of course, that bellows always broke and got leaks. Too, right. But, that was the big problem. I did all, a right. lot of work in the 80s. All the Italy work was done with that. A lot of, I worked with that camera for many, many years. I remember uh, when I bought mine, it came with a magazine ad, and the magazine ad showed, I actually I barely remember the image, but I remember the, the slogan. It was, uh, Plowbell Machina 67, a camera for men. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Wow. The Doi camera was right up by Grand Central. And uh, it was a wonderful camera. I had it repaired once. The bellows would, that, that sliding thing would break. It also had a problem with the transport system. Yeah, the, oh boy, that the, broke The cable all. would break. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But I love that. I mean, in terms of the lens, and uh, right. it was a wonderful, well, wonderful what you, what camera. What are you using these days? You're gonna uh, pull it out of your pocket? <laughs> no, I use I I use the Fuji. What is it? F one hundred. You know the Fuji, the good Fuji one. The the, um, the rangefinder Fuji. Yeah, rangefinder. Not the first model. I mean the first model, not the later model. There was an X Pro and an X one hundred. X one hundred. Right. And I use for the Grant. I use mostly a, a, a Canon D five. Mm-hmm. But uh, I've been digital since ninety eight. Mm. I was using those little point and shoots, mm-hmm. and a lot of the pictures in uh, still life in America, and certainly in, even in uh, in the still life, are, are digital pictures. You were using those uh, early cool pixels that almost looked like yeah. a one ten camera. That's right. Yeah, and just before that, I was using that wonderful Yashica point and shoot with the Zeiss lens. You remember oh, that? Man. They were like a hundred dollars, <laughs> and boy, but they broke easily too. But I had three or four of those. <laughs> Uh, but I, that you ask about the vignette. The vignette mm-hmm. pictures, in a way, made me. I mean, that was the first stuff I had at light. I had they showed all over Chicago. I did this beach series. I don't. It, it, what happened is, I, I can trace it exactly. It's like all photographs are connected to other photographs, and the associative idea between pictures is really something that's not well developed. I was on the beach at Chicago, and there was a man that I saw out there all the time, middle European, he and a bunch of guys, they went out there even to winter. He had a big, hairy, gray chest. Mm. And I knew that camera, and I said, that chest looks like my landscapes. Mm-hmm. And I went up and I photographed him. He let me do it. I know the picture. And <laughs> the rest is history. I realized I could approach, 
and I was really interested in the body. Then I was interested in display, the sexuality, and the release that people had on the street. I mean, on the beach. You have to. You know Chicago. You yeah, know I have been there once. In the Great Lakes area. Well, Chicago is the only city in America, really, where you can get from work to the beach in about five minutes. Hmm. Five minutes. And people don't realize that about Chicago. They think it was a cold, wintry place. But in the summer, you can be, if you're a sailor, say, you can be, go from your office in the, in the loop and be on a sailboat in 10 minutes out on the lake. Right. I don't think you can do that anywhere in the world. Yeah. Perhaps, you know, real, but I don't even think, you know, it, it's an amazing place. People just let go on the beach at lunchtime. Right. And from that group of pictures, I got to lunchtime because it was another way of letting go. Right. And I did a lot of work uh, on the beach. I did a whole book called Beach, and I had a lot of shows of it. And then I did some party. Part, the book you have has some of the party pictures mm-hmm. and other street pictures in it. And then I put the heads back on people and... Went to color. So was it a? It was a, an effect of having of the close focus caused the vignetting to happen. Is that it? Or? No, actually, yes, but both. Um, it happened by accident. I had the wrong lens shade. I had the mm. the uh, normal <laughs> lens shade on the wide angle lens. Gotcha. And I liked it because it referenced a porthole. It referenced the camera itself. Yeah. It referenced the peeking in. It referenced the display. It referenced the TV, the movie screen, and it worked it, yeah. it, it, and it also allowed for a kind of not really circular but a kind of construction in the frame that a sharper border wouldn't would have truncated in a in a in a more severe way mm-hmm. and i only gave it up i think when i started doing the, the lunchtime pictures because i didn't want those to have any effect effect right and I frequently people say, why don't you go back to it? It's such a great thing. <laughs> right. I said, well, you know, I did it. Did it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, when I first got, I, so I have a camera that Tom and I built together called the, we call it Cyclops. And um, I use the Mamiya Press lenses. And when I first got uh, 65 for it, I, the same thing happened. Whoever I bought it from had the wrong sunshade on it. And I shot, you know, the first running out, I probably shot like 10 rolls of film on it before I processed it. And they all have just the corners a little bit. But I don't know, something romantic about it and unexpected. It it sort of makes you realize it's it's about witness. It's about somebody making something through this camera and sucking the thing in. Right. You know, Ansel Adams always burned down the corners. You know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you were probably taught in darkroom to do that. Sure. So the eye wasn't... Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, it's there's kind of video, an extreme of, of that. Yeah. Taught yeah. by Sid Kaplan, by the way. Right. Taught by Sid, right, <laughs> down the street, down the hall. You may be here right now. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and the vignette was always part of uh, earlier 19th century photography. And yeah. people even put photographs in a vignetted frame and so on and so forth. But I, So it was referencing all of that. And I think... It referenced with the beach work in particular this idea of uh, you know you're, you you broke the boundary of what you're the distance, mm-hmm. which was part of what I got to be known for. Right, yeah. so, absolutely. Yeah, it's very effective. Uh, I'm looking at my notes. Yeah, Kai, go ahead. We talked. Oh, let's talk about um, Tom Gitterman. Yeah, he's a wonderful person, and yeah. uh, I always enjoy going to see his shows. Yeah. So. You're represented well, by Tom now? The Gitterman no, Gallery. No, we're not now. But, oh, uh, well. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it wasn't uh, traumatic. 
Tom did three shows and sort of resurrected the history of my work. Um, and and one of the books that I brought today was, yeah, it was published Gitterman, Gitterman. And uh, we did um, uh, Object of My, I'll pull it out and give you a copy, Object of My Desire, which was the first work. Mm. The, the truth is that Tom didn't want to show the color work. He's not a color oh, yeah. And, see that. you know, so where was I to do, you know, if I got two new books coming out of older work and plus I have three potential, I had no choice. But mm. I said, I have to, this isn't working because he wasn't interested in the color work. Yeah, uh, he that. did a beautiful job uh, with the other work. And I'm very grateful to that. I don't have a gallery now. I'm sort of just haven't had time to go find one. And it's not so easy, as you well know. Yeah. And I, in some ways, regret not having the colleague that and relationship with Tom that I had. I mean, he he's a very good guy. He's very and, generous with and, right. uh, the community. Yeah. yeah, the community, exactly. He's, so I was thinking about that in terms of... There's no question. He's part of that world that appreciates the world from which I came. Mm-hmm. And the idea that photographers beget the medium and created the medium and created the interest in it. And, uh, you know, but he makes his money selling. Of course, yeah. Older work. Yeah. And this is part of the part of the gallery problem. And he just wasn't interested in my color work, which for mm-hmm. whatever reason. And I said, I, I can't be in a gallery, just sitting in a gallery, not showing, having book signings, things like that. So yeah, we right. parted very, very, oh, just fine. Nice. But, uh, you know, I, I, I would say I'm sure I regret it more than he does. Because uh, I don't have gallery, <laughs> which is not good, but that's the way life is. Yeah. Uh, another gear question, since we're talking, yeah, is sure. uh, the photographs from I think it's on the edge. Is that the name of the series? New or? York on the oh, edge. New York yes. on the edge. The panoramics. Yeah, what are, right. what are those? Yeah, um, that was another collaborative project. Uh, though most of the pictures that you see on the website are mine. Jerry Gordon uh, was a very good photographer, another Institute of Design graduate, though, after me. Mm. And in the 80s, we formed a partnership called Wayfair mm-hmm. to do editorial, corporate, anything. We both, we would do anything we got job to do. <laughs> but we did a couple commissions. The first one was on uh, at River to River, about 42nd Street, before the 40, uh, we sort of documented the old 42nd Street uh, for a pamphlet to sort of give people a guide to it mm. that I think the 42nd Street Commission or organization was before it all developed mm-hmm. and did some nice pictures there. And then New York on the Edge was our idea, I think. We, we said, you know, New York is on the edge and the real place that is New York is the waterfront. And I, I don't know exactly how this all came, but we met the commissioner, our parks commissioner, who was de- the theory person behind the redevelopment of the Waterhead, or one of them anyway, Ann Buttonweiser. Hmm. And she got us a little money, not very much, but to document it. And sort of she, more than money, she gave us the authority to let us sort of go where we wanted to go. We went out in tugboats and we went on uh, some, we did a lot of aerial stuff that you've never seen, but because it's pretty aerial you know I mean but it documents it's an important document and um, we just found that life on 
the waterfront was where New York was. And of course it is now. I mean, we, you know, this, that was 88, so it was almost right. 20 years. And that's I mean, right, a, right before the massive development. Oh yeah, nothing right. that was developing. Right. And it was all about to happen. And uh, we didn't think it was going to happen. And we photographed pretty much every, in every borough, almost every bit of accessible space. And we used, well, we used two formats. We used the, uh, well, we used a six by seven. What we were using was probably a Pentax, but I'm not sure. But we used that uh, Fuji. I think it was a Fuji six seventeen. Six, yeah, six seventeen. It was a six seventeen. Which was a complicated camera, beautiful idea. And I, again, of course, it took me back to the Sinzabar thing. You know, <laughs> mm. yeah. uh, it was beautiful, but you had to cock it. Yeah. You know, at two steps. Yeah. And. Because of the lens, you had to put a special filter on yes, that lens I to remember even that. it out. It, there and was a neutral density, density filter, filter to even it out. But you lost two and a half stops. Right. <laughs> so it was very hard to make anything candid with that camera. <laughs> right. uh, and we had several shows. We had a show at the Queens Museum, at the uh, the, the the Parks Department thing in Central Park. What's it oh, called? Yeah. The, and one at the Municipal Arts Society. And then again, that work has ended up back in the boxes. So, yeah, so. I, re I recognize a lot of those places because I visited a lot of the spots you picked uh, when I was doing my photographs of bridges, of crossings. And I was also shooting in panoramic when I came yeah. across that work. I said, I know that spot. Yeah. And it looked different then. It looked different when I photographed it, and it looks different now. Oh, I mean, yeah. when I can't even find some of those right. places now. I don't, right. you know, they're all developed and whatever. And, um, you know, the most interesting thing is that, and this goes back to a 19th century history of New York and parks and so on and so forth, the escape for poor people was the waterfront or a cemetery, if nothing else. And it was really incredible that this great city built on that waterfront let it deteriorate to the degree it had deteriorated it, really? I know. by the mid-'80s. I mean, yeah. it was... We, you probably weren't here then, but no, you won't. It, it's really quite incredible how awful it was, how dangerous it was, and interesting at the same time. Yeah, I mean, right. I used to walk around New York while I was here at SVA. I'd walk around 4 or 5 in the morning as the sun was rising, and the, the crime or the post-crime you would find on the edges, bodies, needles, um, cars, on, cars on fire, fire. All, all along and the river. And of course, you know, where the piers were, they were all dilapidated. They were just right. sitting there dilapidating. Yeah. And there's work coming out now about what was going on over there in the yeah. piers. Mm -hmm. Well, I have some great shots of those, which are not on the website. Now, I was, uh, I was interested in that work just because, as you were saying earlier about Chicago and the sense of the water. Well, I think that's... Right. Whereas New I'm, York, you can, you can be in New York and forget that you're near the water. That's absolutely. absolutely. I think absolutely. that, frankly, Jerry, who's now dead, unfortunately. Jerry Gordon? Yeah, he died oh. many a number of years ago, a heart attack. He went into law afterwards. He was uh, a kind of hard-smoking, like cigar-smoking, yeah, well, we hard-drinking kind of guy, right? He wasn't such a drinker, but he was oh, a okay. guy. He was yeah. a big guy. He, he had hereditary bad heart disease. Mm. He was a big guy, and he ate. He, he liked to eat. <laughs> um, he did a group of pictures of people underwater in swimming pools. It was called Swimmers. It's a really a wonderful book. Um, but I think basically we both came to it because my experience in Chicago and working on the beach. And he had grown up in Chicago. Mm. And I think your point is right. 
Kai, that uh, we understood that Chicago had developed its waterfront and what, you know, was always the model. And there was no reason that New York shouldn't have a waterfront like that. And we, we were trying to show very candidly that despite the fact it's not being sh developed, it is still the recreational escape, which it, it was and it is today. Yeah. And, and the, there were planners thinking about it, like this woman, Ann Buttonweiser, but um, she was a very prominent uh, New York figure family. But For the parks. Yeah, she went to Columbia and mm -hmm. city planning. Was uh, she working at the same time? Was it, was it Henry Stein who was parks commissioner? I or think parks? he was commissioner, yeah. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was. He would have Maybe just before him. Even. He was the guy who put um, all the owls in all the parks, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah. She... she she was. She developed part of the waterfront plant, uh, at least the theory behind it. So. Right. Well, when I moved here in 2000, I moved to Williamsburg, and uh, I was still shocked then. At that time, you could go past Kent Avenue, and all of that was undeveloped. Locked of course, off, right? of course, now it's insane. There's like well, that all these whole stretch along the water, and, and I can show you pictures of it. At Williamsburg was just industrial wasteland right? Exactly. and dangerous because you could fall through something. And, yes. yeah. and the same was Sue over on the other side of the water. You know, if you think about the way Jersey looked from, from uh, Hoboken all the way up to the Palisades, to Palisades right. it was just nothing there. Was I mean, it's, it, it, it was a it's chromium, unbelievable. <laughs> chromium wasteland. Chromium yeah. wasteland, right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it was so much fun to drive in there. I mean, and Red Hook, for instance, was, oh, that was just awful where all the, you know, the industry city and all that area out there. You, you, you couldn't drive in there without, you know, running over something that would destroy your car. And I remember one time <laughs> getting out and a pack of wild dogs started running out there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was dangerous. I yeah, mean, yeah. really. And yet, there was a view of the, of the Statue, Statue of Liberty, Liberty of you, like, yeah. you know, all that area where... where now they have beautiful piers going piers out there. Are, that, that, right. that building, I remember what that looked like, and, and uh, Fairway, that's out. I mean, oh, yeah. or uh, Ikea. I mean, I, where Ikea was a bunch of sunken 19th century wooden boats. Right. Oh, wow. I mean, it was just... And, and wild dogs and <laughs> garbage everywhere. Bus. I have. I know there's some picture. I don't think it's on the website. Of just a, maybe 10 burnt out city buses hmm. that are just shells yeah. laying out there. I've been photographing uh, for the last five years. I've been photographing Newtown Creek. So that and it's yeah, very much same same sort of deal. Still, but that. that'll pop too. Yeah, no, One it's, it's going to be and the yeah, Guanas will soon. pop. Yeah, has to. But the question is, where do all the poor people go? Yeah, yeah. that is the question. Where does the industry go? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that same year that I moved here, I decided to read Moby Dick for the first time. And of course, the beginning of Moby Dick is all about, you know, being out there in lower Manhattan and right. like all these men longingly looking out at the water and thinking of the possibilities. And Melville was a customs yeah. uh, clerk. Yeah. Right down there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right in that area. Yeah. And we are still connected to it. New York is, is you know, that, that I saw last night a, a, some food show, you know. I, I've known this, but I didn't quite know that. One of the reasons New York developed it was oyster heaven. I mean, you could just reach down and pull up oysters by the, mm. and, and people could could survive here. Right. Easy. Amazing. I mean, the oyster business developed the city, really. We don't realize. But. Yeah, we don't think about it. Oh. No. 
Kai, was there uh, anything uh, left on your list there you wanted to get to? No, you I, guys are thorough. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I think. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, think I don't want you I, to pass out. <laughs> yeah. I should have ordered you. I, I guess the last thing I was going to mention, we touched on it briefly, but um, if people go to your website or if they should pick up that the great book, The Education of a Photographer, you have the maxims from the chair's office or the chair <laughs> or something. Right. Maxims right. from the chair. Yeah. And uh, one of them on there is. It's very. It has a very pro-digital kind of rant in there somewhere. I don't yeah, know if I does. say rant, but uh, it says if it can be done digital, do it. Do it so, exactly. And, I, and I, I believe that wholeheartedly. I said, I'm going to give you another book. We have another. Adam and I did another book called The New Vision, hmm. or Vision and New. I'm sorry, which is another group of essays that just came out University of California Press this past year, where I have an article in about the digital world which i wrote in 96 for leonardo mit's leonardo magazine and i still believe it i think the digital revolution in all aspects is beyond wonderful i think for our medium it's just incredible i i don't understand anybody who laments it you know yeah i lament that i don't know how to make a daguerreotype but i don't want to make one i don't want the toxicity we have one dark room left here I think it's, they still teach freshmen in that dark. I think it's a waste of time. But that, I don't run the undergraduate. But there's so much to learn about printing, about making imagery. And in any matriculation, you know, you only have so much time to do it. So becoming a good digital printer is every bit as hard as becoming a good black and white printer or a good traditional printer. And the resolutions that we're getting, you know, I think about people saying, oh, it's too sharp. Too sharp. I mean, Ansel would turn over in his grave. You know, that's what he always wanted. Everything sharp as it could be. And so... Precisionists, right. Um, and then where it leads you for collage and for painting and for all the other things that an image maker can be in terms of exploring or just being a pure, straight, real-world witness image maker, mm -hmm. which I am. You know, everybody says, oh, it's too easy. It isn't easy. Editing gets harder. Sure, you make more, but you, you have the opportunity to explore more. Mm -hmm. And you're not self-conscious to the degree, well, I'm going to run out of film holders here. You know, so yes, the issue is to edit and is to be conscious and see what you're making and, and use all the older criteria of aesthetics, of composition, of form and line and color and all the things that we're taught or not taught to evaluate what you're doing. An idea, of course, is the ultimate thing. People say, I'm a conceptual photographer. Well, I'm a conceptual photographer too because all photography is conceptual. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. Right. Right. I mean, whatever conceptual If you had an idea, it's conceptual. Right. I mean, <laughs> photography is about ideas. Yeah, I think and that, well, conceptual photography is more like about illustrating ideas. It's like Yeah, I mean, it's a perfectly valid what they what a conceptual photographer who says that he or she is one does is perfectly valid but don't tell me i'm not a conceptual photographer yeah. all photography is conceptual or it's just snap shooting or it's just picture making and it's all about the lens and the screen arts and frankly there's very little separation between what happens in the uh, camera between the still and the moving we we have to all embrace it i'll show you wonderful did you see the cartier bresson picture no, which one? I'll show you. This is really terrific. <laughs> this is... Ah, oh, God. 
That's pretty funny. Yes. <laughs> Cartier Brisson's Cart- famous yes. uh, decisive, decisive moment moments. photograph, in <laughs> animated with yeah. the uh, the gentleman the running. Still moment. Yeah. I mean, it's it <laughs> is the hilarious. perfect well to the still and moving and and turning it around on itself in a way. You know, <laughs> and I didn't realize this till Alice Becaudet told me this last night because I showed her that and she laughed. Of course, he set that picture up. Oh. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that. No. I'm not surprised. Apparently right. he saw it, and the next day came back with his brother and did it again. <laughs> that's, what I, that's actually how I usually describe the decisive moment. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's post-decisive moment, yes. but recaptured. Yeah. Right. But I did not know that. And <laughs> I, I assume great. she's right about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. So we don't know for sure, but yes, right. well, that's, what, that's what we've heard. <laughs> so just, just to cap that point... We're in the age of the lens and screen arts, still and moving, or what you could also call the camera arts. And frankly, it's the matrix of most of our dialogue and almost every, of most of our dialogue certainly as image makers, and a great deal of our dialogue in almost every field, whether it be science, medicine, humanities, we have to work with that still and moving image on the screen all the time. And we got to know something about it in terms of our literacy, in terms of our cultural language, because it is a language. And frankly, I think the photographic community that we are a part of and that we have inherited have created at least the means for that discourse that needs to go forward and further in the 21st century. Well, that, that's a great place to end the show, I yeah. think. Thank you so much for, for all this time. Thank you, yeah, thank, thank you, Charlie. Really appreciate it. I should it. have uh, ordered yeah. this lunch. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> all right. Goodbye, everybody. I think I have to deal with all those aspiring Chelseaites. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>